When we marvel at a website, get awestruck by a documentary, or share jaw-dropping social media that shows us something new and amazing about our planet, it's the place, the event, the animal, the natural world that absolutely fascinates us. What we often fail to consider is who found this place, who filmed this event, who discovered this animal, who ventured into somewhere that no one else has ever been before. But when it comes to some of the deepest recesses of our seas and oceans, it's often our guest on this episode of One of the Eight. Native of Canada, an International Divers Hall of Fame member, cave diver, Jill Hayner. With her business card that says Explorer, Jill is a diver, photographer, writer and speaker, whose incredible adventures include being one of the first ever to dive inside an Antarctic iceberg. Her story is literally breathtaking, and we're really proud to share it with you on One of the Eight. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have had many, many opportunities in my life to go to places that not another single human being has ever seen or perhaps will ever see. I'm Jake Worley, and this is One of the Eight, bringing you the real-life stories of real-world people, the things they have achieved and the things that have inspired them. Hi guys, in this episode of the One of the Eight podcast, we have the absolute privilege of hearing the story of a Canadian cave diver, explorer, underwater filmmaker and author, Jill Hayneth. She has produced content for organizations like National Geographic and the BBC. She's also the first person to actually dive inside an iceberg in the Antarctica and truly lives up to her desire to explore somewhere that no one has ever gone before. So Jill, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here with you. So let's start with a little bit of background information, if that's okay with you, on kind of where you're from and what childhood was like for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, right now uh, calling from uh, near Ottawa, Canada. So I grew up in uh, the Toronto area in Canada and uh, a real outdoorsy kid with uh, lots of interests, but always, always in the outdoors and in the water. Okay, wow. And it was that... Um... As a child, were you always out doing kind of outdoor activities with your parents or were you a bit of a lone wolf on that one? Oh, a bit of both. I, I mean, my, uh, you know, on the weekends, my family would go out hiking on the Bruce Trail or exploring different places. But, but yeah, I was always that curious kid out uh, sort of making your own entertainment as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I think from doing a little bit of research on your childhood, I think it's safe to say that you were always one of those kids that was always very curious and always kind of had a burning desire to learn. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, no doubt. I was that kid always asking teachers for more work because <laughs> I <laughs> wanted to learn new things. And uh, yeah, you know, in my family too, we would always be encouraged to go to the dictionary or the encyclopedias and look things up. Wow. Okay. And what did you, what did you want to be growing up? What was that thing you wanted to be when you were a fully adult? Yeah. You know, of course, with every kid, it kind of switches from week to week and day to day, but <laughs> you know, I wanted to be an astronaut. That was a, that was a big thing, but, uh, but I was, you know, constantly shifting my interests into different areas of science and, uh, and which is ironic because in university I ended up taking uh, a fine arts degree. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And was was that a degree you were you were happy with? Was that something that served you well in life since? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it was more a matter of I did not want to be a specialist. So, you know, I was interested in lots of different sciences and other activities, but I couldn't see myself specializing in one academic area. And so being in a creative field really encouraged my exploration. Um, Oh my gosh! Someone just came outside my window with a uh, a weed cutter. I think. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. It sounded like you were being invaded, but don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can close the window if you want, or we can just forge on. <laughs> uh, no, well, if you got the weeds in one go, then we'll carry on. <laughs> okay, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, a lot of little color to the podcast. <laughs> You know, just just when you least expect it, the lawnmowers come out, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I wanted to touch on was mm-hmm. you said you wanted to be an astronaut growing up. Mm. Was that something that was a realistic goal or was that, you know, were there facilities and kind of infrastructure in place that that looked like it would be something that's possible for someone like you at that time or not really? Yeah, not really. I mean, I grew up in the 60s and um, and we watched men walking around on the surface of the moon as as kids. So that, you know, that was inspiring. But whenever I brought it up, it was it was more a situation where uh, people would remind me that we didn't have a Canadian space program. We didn't have women astronauts. And so there would be no opportunity for me. Um and certainly other, you know, other women like Roberta Bondar in Canada prevailed. But, uh, but yeah, it didn't seem like a possibility. So I set my sights in other directions. So I guess you wanted to explore down instead of up then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That almost happened by accident. I mean, I, I loved caving. Uh, when I became a scuba diver, finally, in, in university, I had wanted to do it my whole life. But when I became a scuba diver, on my open water weekend, my instructor took us into a, a cavern, which that's not exactly something you should be doing on an open water right. court. But, um, but it kind of, you know, inspired me. I guess it opened my eyes to the possibilities of cave diving. And I went, wow, this is incredible. And is that where the diving all first started at university? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I wanted to do it earlier. I had done one dive in a pool at 16 years of age, but um, I didn't have you know, the money or even really the understanding of how or where someone could learn to dive. So when I finally got a chance and it saved my money to take a class and buy some equipment, I just never turned back. Wow. So... Before I get to kind of some of the incredible projects you've worked on, I think it'd be helpful to try and understand in a little bit of better detail what it is that you do. I thought, imagine there was a job vacancy advert that kind of went out with your job title and your job description on it. What would it say? Well, my business card says Explorer. Okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that's the best way to describe what I do. But but in the sort of... Uh, basic sense I, I, uh, I do anything I can to stay in the water so I'm a writer I'm an underwater photographer underwater cinematographer I collaborate with scientists becoming their hands and eyes in the environment I'm a test pilot I'm an instructor I'm a motivational speaker and all of those activities uh, 
all involve, um, you know, my expeditions and projects and, uh, and all of that gives me uh, enough opportunity to get a paycheck to bring home <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> wow. And the, the caves that you explore, um, mm -hmm. is there an actual kind of process or some form of validating factor? What is it that has to happen for there to be a difference between what you do that actually verifies you have explored and discovered a new place versus someone that just goes there and could say, yes, I've been there. Is there something you have to do to validate this? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you explore a cave for the first time, uh, it's one thing to just swim in there and say, yeah, I've been there. Um, you actually have to make a map. If you don't make a, a proper survey of the cave, then the rest of the community will just say, well, gosh, well, you haven't been there then. It doesn't count. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's important to document and survey these places accurately. And I guess that would lead quite nicely to pick your brains a little bit on, I believe you created, was there something to do with 3D mapping that you played a significant role in for the caves? Well, um, back in the mid-1990s, I first met and uh, went on some expeditions with Dr. Bill Stone, who's uh, also the lead of the uh, United States Deep Caving Team. And um, during a project we were involved in in 1995, he proposed building a three-dimensional cave mapping device that would allow us for the very first time in history to accurately map a cave in three dimensions and marry it to the surface topography with accuracy so that people could walk over the surface of the earth and know precisely where water-filled conduits were beneath their feet. And two years later, we... Um, we first, you know, proved uh, the efficacy of that, that device on a project in Wakulla Springs in North Florida that I was uh, an exploration diver and test pilot on. And I've continued to work with Bill um, throughout my career, uh, continued to, you know, volunteer uh, for projects with him as, as that mapper has continued to, to develop to the point that it's now a fully autonomous, artificially intelligent robot cave. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I guess that takes away a little bit of the danger, perhaps maybe is it fair to say it can go out there by itself and not put you at as much risk now? Yeah, that's that's really the point. I mean, it could go to places that I can't go deeper or in you know worse visibility. It can bring back a map, even if it can't see the walls, the floor, the ceiling, or anything around it. And uh, and so yeah, that certainly reduces risk for me. You know, there's still there's still work involved with uh, helping to continue to to develop and test the the actual device itself. Um, and I also think there's always a place for the human brain and eyes in, in cave exploration. Yes. And what um, kind of percentage of the earth have we got mapped? How much oh. of it do we know from, cave, from, you know from the underwater cave perspective? Oh, very little. I mean, you know, we've got Google Earth, but uh, we're only just beginning to try and pull together the equivalent of a Google Oceans with bathymetry and that kind of information. But really, up until um, our use of the mapper in 1997-98, scientists had no interest in our cave maps at all. They didn't think they were accurate. They didn't think, therefore, they were useful to science or had any important information. Now they understand that cave divers are really important to understanding these, you know, conduits of water that run inside the planet 
but we have very few of those mapped around the world. Um, I think it's a, a, a great opportunity for exploration in the future. And I think it's a very important area of interest because water is really the important uh, issue of our next generation, you know, where it is, how we might be unintentionally polluting it or overusing it, and how we can conserve these groundwater resources that that you know nourish so much on the planet from estuaries to rivers creeks and eventually out to you know the oceans and great currents of the world yeah i mean it's it's a, like you say it's a major problem and something that i think the more we educate and more there's people like yourself willing to risk life and limb to find out these things then it's certainly something we need isn't it yeah absolutely and and i think in times like this, where we're all in sort of isolation from, from COVID, there's one thing that humanity has learned in this last few months, and that's that everything we do on the surface of this earth is interconnected, and you cannot separate yourself from the actions of someone on the other side of the earth. I mean, in March, there was one case of, of COVID in the United States. And now look at it. If, if anyone could say that our lives are not connected, then uh, they're fooling themselves now. Yeah, 100%. Um, and so to kind of build an even clearer picture of the incredible work that you do, I'd love to talk about some of the most, what, what I perceived, uh, you might disagree, but from what I perceived as the most significant projects that you've worked on or some of the most fascinating, there's mm -hmm. three that I've picked out that I'd love to hear about. Sure. Uh, and the first is about you being the first person in history to dive deep into an Antarctic iceberg. Could, I, I mean, I'm itching yeah. to know about this. <laughs> yeah, that was back in 2000 when um, we had been watching some satellite photography um, as the largest iceberg in recorded history broke away from the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica. And I remember looking at the cracks develop over time. It was, you know, over the course of years. And I thought to myself, wow, this is just like cracks in, in limestone. And when, you know, when it rains, the rain will exploit those cracks and crevices in the limestone, make them bigger. And that's where we find caves. So why wouldn't it be the same in ice? I thought to myself, if these cracks and crevices you know break open and melt water is flowing down inside them then it will you know dissolve away new passages and places where i might be able to explore and so in 2000 when it actually separated from the ross ice shelf we um, left from new zealand to um, make a 12-day ocean crossing to reach uh, the Ross uh, Sea and uh, cave dive inside icebergs for the very first time in history. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what, what was it like inside the iceberg? It was, it was crazy. It, it, uh, I, I always say that the texture of the ice when we first entered looked like like the surface of a golf ball with little divots, you know, carved by the hand okay. of the sea. Yeah, and... Um, the ice is not uniform in any way, like because you imagine like ice is laid down as snowpack over over time, right? And right. and then the weight of the ice com 
compresses and compresses and compresses. So you have layers that are white. You have layers that are absolutely clear, like a window. You have layers that are filled with little, little bubbles. And then when something breaks away as an iceberg and pieces of ice break away, icebergs calve, they roll, they move around. And so sometimes those layers are then turned up on their side and you see them in a vertical format. And it's, it's just otherworldly. You know, um, wow. in an ever-changing environment. And how deep down did you have to go? Uh, well, we our deepest dives in Antarctica were about uh, 40 meters deep, uh, and we limited ourselves somewhat because we did not want to spend too much time under an, uh, what we call a decompression obligation, meaning that we cannot surface if we need to. Uh, because obviously it's extremely cold. It's minus 1.8 Celsius in the water, you know, one-tenth of a degree colder and it would be frozen. And so we only have a limited amount of time in the water. We'd like to spend as much of that time, you know, swimming and exploring as opposed to sitting still and decompressing and just getting frozen. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I believe you had some quite, uh, a couple of close calls whilst you were in there across those days diving. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's no handbook written for um, iceberg cave diving because nobody had done it before. <laughs> and um, we experienced big pieces of ice calving. We, at one point, had the doorway that we'd swam into blocked by a oh large my. piece of ice. We discovered um, more and more uh, dangerous currents. We were actually at a particular phase of the moon that as the expedition progressed and as our cave diving continued we were getting into you know sort of more violent currents that became impossible to swim against uh, so at, at on one occasion we were actually trapped inside the iceberg you know kind of oh. unable to overcome the strength of the current uh yeah so every day day was something new well then how long were you trapped in there for well, we had planned a one-hour dive that became a three-hour fight for our lives <laughs> before we finally surfaced and got ourselves back to the boat. Wow, but did you, did you get everything you needed? <laughs> well, on that particular dive, um, we actually got out. It, we were you know, quite aware that we had um, taken a great risk and, and you know, could have lost our lives. But we planned another dive, <laughs> thinking that we wanted to get a little bit more footage for the movie and for the National Geographic article. But before we had an opportunity to do one more dive, as we prepped our gear and, and planned to get in, as soon as the currents lock and the iceberg we'd been inside of literally exploded. <laughs> no way. And broke into slush and small chunks of ice as far as the eye could see. I guess does that that's really kind of that must hit home watching that happen because i guess a few hours earlier you you could have been in amongst that yeah absolutely i mean we stood on the railing just with our jaws dropped to the deck and i turned to the science officer and said i, I think mother nature is telling us you know it, it's time to go home wow wow that's yeah. incredible yeah. i guess that is that must be in one of your scariest moments Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I really thought as we were, you know, fighting our way out of that iceberg, I thought, I don't know if we're getting home. And when I got back on the deck after that dive, the first thing I said to the, the science officer was that the cave tried to keep us today. 
Wow. That's giving me chills just thinking about it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. But I mean, like most things in human history so far, there's always the one or two or three brave people like yourself that have to take those first steps to discover the things to get us to where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, people look back on, on those dives sometimes and say, gosh, it sounds pretty foolish. But you know, when you're doing something that's new, you can only go based on the information that you have. And then each day when you get out of the water and you you know, realize you had a close call or something was risky, you try to find a better way to do it the next day. And it, it's, that's really what exploration is about, just pushing the envelope of our understanding and, and hopefully for a purpose that contributes to mankind's understanding of, of our earth and the unique processes. Wow. And continuing this fabulous kind of vibe that we're on here, the next thing I'd love to hear about is the ancient remains of the Mayan civilizations that you were part of? Yeah, I've done quite a bit of work in Mexico, uh, mostly, uh, but all over Central America and the Caribbean. And, um, you know, many of those early civilizations, the Mayans, as well as the Lucayans in the Bahamas, used caves as portals to their underworld. Their underworld being their their next world, not not with necessarily the same negative connotations that we might put with an underworld. Um, since they believed in, in reincarnation, this was sort of the next step towards rebirth for them. So um, caves became places that were important for ceremony, also for sacrifice, um, and also as the sources of their drinking water at a time when uh, the civilization was struggling from from drought and food security issues. Okay, and what what was it that you discovered? What was it that you found? Oh well, gosh, I've done more than twenty years of of work in Mexico, but we found everything from pottery to actual human remains, um, sacrificial ceremonial remains, as well as as human burials. Um, we find evidence of the Mayans using these these caves at times when the sea levels would have been lower and the water table was lower. Uh, and so places that we swim through today, they may have crawled down into in order to get fresh water or to beseech their gods for uh, water resources. Wow. I guess it's quite interesting for you then to see in just the first two kind of projects we've spoken about here, the first is your kind of taking forward steps into something where humanity's never been before, but your job's also looking back and discovering things that have already happened too. Absolutely. And uh, all of these projects inform us about uh, paleoclimatology. So what the Earth's climate was like before, and therefore how we might model it for the future, what our resources were like, uh, like water resources at other times in history, and therefore the challenges that we might face in the future and how we could overcome them. So if we don't understand our, our history, it's very difficult to plan for the future. And caves can tell us so much about Earth's past. And what are some of the key things, if it's possible to kind of categorize them, what are some of the main things that a cave shows or manifests that you use to determine that information? 
Well, in addition to, um, you know, cultural stories and history that we learn about uh, and, uh, and even from, you know, current Indigenous people, we can also look to the geology of caves to inform us about Earth's past climate. So in the Bahamas, for instance, we find a, a red-colored material in layers, you know, trapped inside the sediments in the caves. And this red material in these Bahamian caves actually came from the Sahara Desert. So during dry times on planet Earth, we get great dust storms in the Sahara Desert. And those dust storms blow all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And then rain carries these fine red sediments down onto the surface. And then they slowly soak into the earth and then after they soak into the earth when water tables are lower in some of these caves i mean these caves were formed when they were dry then the water drips from the ceiling to the floor in these caves carrying with it some of this red sediment that then is deposited in these layers and eventually trapped within the layers within the rock inside these caves and we can bring out um, a calcite speleothems like uh, cave formations to um, scientists that can cut them open and look at these layers much in the same way that you would look at an ice core or the growth rings in a tree. And we can count back in time and learn when Earth's um, uh, sea levels were lower, water tables were lower, uh, times were drier, and that can help us to forecast um, future sea level rises and changes. Wow, that's fascinating. I feel like I've just gone through about six years of geography high school <laughs> in about 10 seconds there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we haven't even talked about the life in the caves yet either. <laughs> no, tell me, tell me. Yeah, I mean, most people assume that, that life on Earth re relies on sunlight, photosynthesis, uh, but we have uh, animals that live their entire life cycles in the complete blackness of an underwater cave, never surfacing, never experiencing daylight. Animals that have no eyes, that have no pigment, that live much longer um, in caves than similar animals that do live in the daylight. So in these very food-scarce, dark environments, we have animals with great longevity and animals that have been around on Earth for a very long time as well. Animals that predate the extinction of the dinosaurs so animals swimming in caves today that are in an identical form to what they were more than 65 or 70 million years ago like they haven't evolved uh, so these animals might teach us something very unique about evolution and survival uh, in these very tough environments that they live in wow I mean, it's just incredible. It really is. It's really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and what was it that you are, the, the third thing that I wonder if some of what you've just discussed was what you were working on in the next project. Um, I know this area is something of great fascination to scientists, conspiracy theorists. What is it that you've done with your work in the Bermuda Caves? Oh, yeah. Um, Bermuda has, uh, Bermuda is actually a volcanic seamount, so it's an atoll. And uh, there are a couple of seamounts just offshore of Bermuda, so it's very, very deep. Um, so in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, our only Atlantic uh, volcanic atoll, the top of Bermuda has like a limestone cap, and there are lots of caves there that we dive in, and there's unique animals that live in those spaces, some that are endemic to a single cave on the planet, 
some that are endemic to a single room within a single cave on the planet. We found these animals nowhere else on Earth. And uh, so we've explored those caves and those animals, but we've also done deep dives, the deepest manned dives off of Bermuda and those uh, local seamounts in order to see if we could find locations and evidence of former sea levels, maybe former paleo caves, and maybe where the biology could have migrated perhaps from deep ocean environments. Wow. I mean, it's incredible. You're literally, you're discovering things that, I mean, not even 99%, even more than that, of people will probably never, ever see in their lifetimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have had many, many opportunities in my life to go to places that not another single human being has ever seen or perhaps will ever see. And... And that's a big goal for me as as the artist that I that I am. I'm always carrying a camera or you know a video a camera into a cave to bring back those images, whether it's for science or whether it's for outreach to help people understand these incredible environments. So what is it that you enjoy the most out of all of your diving and exploration that you do? Is there one thing that you can say above all else is this is why I do it? Really, it's a learning. Uh, I mean, every project that I get involved in involves some new discipline of science that I that I know nothing about. I mean, right now I'm working with a scientist who is a malacologist. I didn't even know what a malacologist was. But I'm not going to pretend I do either. Yeah, it's a <laughs> zoologist that specializes in uh, bivalves, shells, and okay. uh, yeah. So I, I've taken a deep dive literally into uh, his world to uh, understand um, these animals who are uh, really really important uh, filter feeders and uh, in freshwater caves these animals have a, a relationship with freshwater fish population that's quite quite unique and I'm documenting an endangered species inside a cave environment and an ecosystem that that's never been written about in in the scientific papers before um, so my partner's not a cave diver and I'm not a malacologist okay. but together um, we can do some pretty important work that will help protect a watershed hopefully protect some endangered species and uh, and water quality in the future so when you're going on a project like that, or if you've gone out to the Antarctica, for example, I'd imagine there's probably some quite high expenses involved to these expeditions. And I'm not sure if there's one answer that fits all of the projects you've done, but how are they funded? Yeah, there's not really one answer. I mean, I'm always, you know, trying to be creative and scrambling to find the next paycheck because it's, it's quite difficult, as you can imagine. Sometimes I discover a phenomena or a place and then I pitch it to a, a TV network and convince them that this is a good story and uh, then create a job for myself to shoot the <laughs> film or, or shoot photos and write about phenomena for articles and magazines around the world. Uh, sometimes entities like National Geographic or other television stations may reach out to me and ask me to film a, a story in a difficult or unique place. Um, so I'm always applying for grants. Uh, sometimes when it's, you know, technology like the mapper, we, we go to private funders. I mean, now the mapping device is being, uh, you know, co-developed with support from NASA. Uh, wow. But it's really, really hard when an artist reaches out <laughs> into the world <laughs> and says, you know, help me, help me fund this. I mean, I'm not 
a PhD. I'm not a charitable organization. I'm not a company. And so a lot of times I do end up doing independent projects, making my own movies or books and, um, and then motivational speaking to help, help put food on the table. Wow, I mean, as incredible it is, it's it's almost a real shame because you know you're, you're really writing human history here, and it's something that you know naively I would just assume, yeah, there's places and people that always fund this thing. Yeah, I, I wish. I mean, certainly, if I had de- dedicated my life to a specialty, I, I could have found a place in academia. But but because I'm like a, a you know. ADHD <laughs> running all over doing so many different things then then I don't I don't really fit in anybody's you know model uh, and so there were very few grants that I can even qualify for when I when I look for those sorts of things so it 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 is definitely challenging especially during times like this when I had 2 years of work lined up and and covid canceled it all because I can't I can't gather and work with people right now. So everything I have to do needs to happen uh, on my own, essentially. Wow. Well, I mean, kudos to you. It's, it's incredible that you've got such drive and incredible work ethic. It really is. Um, and you've been doing this now for roughly 30 years, I believe. And yes. you've received an incredible amount of awards. You've, you've received the Canadian Polar Medal, Beneath the Sea Diver of the Year. You've been inducted into the Women's Divers Hall of Fame. Um, what's your proudest moment from your career so far? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, this year, the Explorers Club um, uh, awarded me with the William, or will award me, I suppose, <laughs> with the William Beebe um, Prize for ocean exploration that's only ever been given five times in history. And uh, and I'll be the first woman recipient of that. Um, it was to be presented in, in March. <laughs> and then and then COVID happened. And so all of the uh, all of the ceremonies and uh, gatherings were all canceled. So one day that'll officially happen. But, uh, but to, you know, follow in in the footsteps of a, a great explorer like Phoebe is, um, was really meaningful to me. Wow. Um, but there's one thing that stood out to me when I was kind of researching about you and it, it's still a struggle to say that sentence just then when I said the women's divers hall of fame, mm-hmm. what's it, what's kind of your mindset on, you know, having the word the women's yeah. divers hall of fame because yeah. i was talking to my sister about you and when i told her about this title that you had she said to me well, what's the difference between mm-hmm. <laughs> between a male yeah. diver and a female diver what's kind of what's your what's your head at on that what a wonderful reaction I, yeah uh, actually i did get inducted in the international divers uh, okay. hall of fame this year so oh congrats <laughs> but but 20 years ago uh well 21 years ago now the women divers hall of fame was was formed because there were very few women that were being recognized for for their efforts and a real struggle especially for women in the sport so the organization was created both to to recognize um you know, women's place in in the history of diving and science and exploration. Uh, And we created a scholarship and mentorship um, 
uh, organization, basically. So every year we, we give away a significant amount of money to young women in the form of training grants and scholarships, as well as mentorships uh, to increase the, the presence and participation of women in diving. Um, I really do look forward to a time when we don't need a Women Divers yes. Hall of Fame. <laughs> um, but, but I think that if you sat down and interviewed many of the women that are recognized, they have some pretty devastating and, you know, heartbreaking stories about the struggles that they face to participate in this, in this sport in a meaningful way and get jobs and opportunities. Yeah, well, I mean, continue doing what you're doing because it's people like you that are part of helping make such drastic change. Oh, thanks. Um, and what other thing I wanted to touch on was, have you seen throughout your career a change in the environment in these parts of the planet that you go to? What sort of changes have you seen, if there's been any? Yeah, I mean, I'm 55 years old and I shouldn't have a long enough life to have seen such dramatic changes in both in caves and in waterways uh, uh, around around the world it's 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 terrifying i mean in the open water i see um you know the loss of coral reefs the loss of fish populations i see uh, eutrophication so green algae in our in our waterways and even in our great ocean currents uh you know, in the caves themselves, I see a reduction in the flow, the current coming out of some of the great freshwater aquifers on the planet. I see a, a loss of native species, an increase in in non-native um, vegetation and and fish. Um, we even see a you know a slowing of the great ocean currents around the world and and a migration of of animals northward into places where uh, they, we did not see them before. So um, there's, there's a lot. I see the plastification of our oceans, the acidification of our, of our oceans. All of these are, are evidence of, of global climate change and it's, it's happening at a terrifying rate. I mean, it's thanks to work of people like yourself that we're becoming more and more aware of these things. But do you think we're doing enough to start fixing the problem yet? No, we're not doing enough. There's no question. Uh, we're we are expanding our you know human understanding of of, of the issues. Uh, but I am a an eternal optimist. I mean, these are big, big problems that require very you know brave, uh, brave work, science and exploration. Uh, but I think, you know, we can't discount even very small steps that every individual can make towards a, a better climate future. Uh, I think that's critically important. And that's why I feel that the outreach and education work that I can do can be incredibly important. I can't give up, right? Uh, right. <laughs> none of us can give up. We all have to realize that we're part of the puzzle for, for creating a better future world. So what's your kind of, in a day-to-day -day setting, in, in a normal, you know, working lifestyle environment, what's the most basic change, you know, average Joe, all of us could make to actually start kind of contributing towards turning that around? Well, I think everybody needs to understand that they're, they are a truly global citizen and that, you know, problems on the other side of the planet will affect us. <laughs> and so therefore we have to be a part of things like ensuring that 
basic access to clean water and sanitation is is um, is a human right and should be a human right for all in order to avoid a, a world of conflict. So supporting those kinds of efforts is important. Um, and just being a better, greener uh, you know, steward of the planet, whether that's, you know, reducing, reusing and recycling or, you know, buying less stuff, voting with your wallet by buying things that support a greener world. Uh, I think all of those small actions are important. And then understanding the um, critical importance of your vote uh, in the world today and and realizing that we have to make hard changes that aren't going to be easy, aren't going to be pleasant, <laughs> yes. but we must support those financially and, um, and with our votes. Okay. Interesting. And I mean, th- yeah, they're all things that I think we can all implement in our day-to-day lives. Um, so I'd like to swing in a completely different direction before I give you our last question. Um, yeah. I'd like to know a little bit more about the mindset behind someone like yourself when doing something as dangerous as cave diving. Um, what are kind of your approaches to, I mean, you talked about when you essentially got trapped into the iceberg, mm-hmm. what's your approach to danger and reacting to fear? Mm-hmm. First of all, I think it's important that uh, we all embrace fear and we step towards it as opposed to running away from it. I mean, if we run from fear, uh, we'll never, ever explore or discover anything new for ourselves <laughs> yes. or for the planet. True. So, yeah, so I acknowledge that I am scared when I do things and I, I will learn as much as I can, mitigate the risks before I get in the water. But then if something terrifies me underwater, something frightening happens, I, I sort of go into a, a bit of a meditation exercise where I take a very deep breath and I tell myself that fear will not serve me well in this moment. And I have to push aside the emotions and just be a pragmatist that takes very small steps towards success and, and it really, it brings us back around to that last question about, you know, how you can make this a better world. And, and that's just an acknowledgement that there are big problems that seem too enormous to solve. But we all know small steps that we can make towards, towards a, a positive outcome. So just be content to take those small steps and move forward, um, as opposed to being paralyzed by something that scares you. Wow. That's incredible. That's really, really fantastic advice. Um, and I, I mean, I, I lived out in America and whilst I was there, I made quite a few friends who were veterans. They'd served out either during uh, Vietnam or out in the Middle East. And I was often fascinated by the struggles that they faced coming back from the war zones that they were in back into normal civilization. And when I was reading about you, I thought, actually, there's some parallels there that Mm -hmm. is it strange for you going from being inside an iceberg to going to the grocery store? (laughs) Absolutely. My my husband's actually a a military veteran. Um, He was a combat photojournalist in the, in the U S Navy Seabees. Uh, And so we have a lot of talk about PTSD. I mean, he says that he has known more, uh, like loss and, and grief from my career than from his own. And he came back from his his efforts in the military with PTSD. 
and then there's also the aspect of just having such, you know, outside the box experiences. And, and even if, even if you haven't, you know, suffered a loss in those experiences, when you come back to, you know, the normal world it's 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 almost difficult to find meaning in the, in the grocery yes. store aisle yeah. what does this all mean nobody really wants to hear the gory details of everything that you experience and so it's it's difficult to to sometimes relate to people and experiences when you come home and i think that's why i carry the camera that's why i tell the stories um it's why i do the outreach because I think that the, the experiences that I've had are important and informative and, and can help people to understand things that are outside their, their normal experiences in life. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and what kind of emotions, I know, I mean, it sounds, you have a very scientific, calculated, I have a process when I'm going, you know, all of these hundreds of meters below the sea to discover new places but what do you get kind of in your heart and in your gut is there a feeling that you get each time that you do it that makes you think either is it either a pleasant experience or a fearful experience kind of what are the emotions going on inside of you outside of what needs to be done with the task at hand whilst you're down so mm. deep i mean sometimes it's it's years to prepare for a pro project, so there's stress, there's fear, there's excitement in all of the, all of the the planning. Uh, you know, in the moment when I'm on an expedition, I would say that I am laser focused. I'm I'm aware that every second on an expedition is is finite and important, and it's an opportunity that I will likely never have again. And so I I I feel. I feel honored and privileged to have those opportunities and, and I want to make the best of them at every moment. Wow. That's great. Um, so our final question for you here, as we get each of our guests to do on the one of the eight podcast, I'd love to know Jill, what or who has inspired you throughout your life so far? Wow. I, there's so many people, but there, there's probably two in particular that stand out. You know, as a as a young person, I read Rachel Carson. Okay. And her, you know, her book Silent Spring was incredibly informative. Um, and the sea around us. And in her, I saw a citizen scientist. I wasn't aware before reading her that that you could be a non-scientist scientist, you know, right. and an observer, conservationist. And so I guess she she gave me that conception of what was possible and also a deep understanding of how important, you know, conservation initiatives were. Um, and then, you know, more directly, Sylvia Earle, who many people refer to as her deepness, okay. <laughs> has been an incredible um role model as well and a, and a friend she's she's 85 years old now and uh one of the first you know working women divers in science she's been the head of uh the chief scientist for noaa and she's designed submarines she did the early uh tektite expedition where she you know, lived underwater in a in a habitat for a long period of time uh so for her so she has been a, a great role model and mentor Wow. Well, 
I have no doubt at all that kind of with the work that you do, the person you are and the outlook that you have that you're going to be and are already many people's answer to that question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I think that's maybe the most important thing I do in life is inspire the next 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure there are plenty of 10-year-olds out there who mm-hmm. are absolutely massively inspired by what you do. It's just fascinating and incredible. And, you know, I, I almost feel obliged, even though I have no pull on humanity at the moment, to say thank you on our behalf. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> And then just our last thing to touch on, um, tell us a little bit so that our listeners can find out a little bit more about what's in your Into the Planet book. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, my book is is a memoir. So it's it's my life as a cave diver through all of these strange expeditions around the world. But, but really, the topic is fear and how we can um, face fear and bring it into our lives. And in that way, it became a real timely memoir for, <laughs> for this time. I know most people will never be cave divers, but I hope it might give them some strategies for facing really you know, challenging situations and isolation and encourage them to step into the darkness. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for this, Jill. I, honestly, it's been a real blessing to hear. I've absolutely loved every second of it. It's been fantastic. Oh, thanks. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate the invitation. There are almost 8 billion people on our planet, and Jill Hayner is one of the eight. You can find out more about how the kid who wanted to be an astronaut became one of the foremost explorers of the deep, and discover what inspires her online at oneoftheeight.com. Everyone has a story to share. Everyone has something to give. Everyone can inspire. One of the Eight is a movement of real-world people from across the globe, sharing real-life stories, inspiring others, enriching lives, and giving something back. I am, you are, everyone is one of the eight. Now streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Join the movement at oneoftheeight.com.